How do we grow? What takes us from simply reading and listening to moving and doing? Into a roll up your sleeves and get your hands dirty kind of walk, driven by a desire to grow in grace and humility, digging in faith and on good soil, implanting his word in our hearts, waking up to life on the other side, where peace-loving wisdom resides, persevering through trials and temptation, through death and destruction, giving life-breathing water through action and deed, letting it soak in and take deep root in every aspect. That kind of doing changes us. It leads us into true faith, true faith that produces good fruit and changes who we are in Christ, driving us to sow in peace and reap a harvest of righteousness, to lead with love and give to others generously with mercy, causing us to be not just hearers of the word, but doers. Well, this is week six is uh, we've been studying the book of James, and I want to welcome you here in Bellingham. Those of you in Skagit joining us right now, thank you for being with us at the Trinity Church of God as well in Boca Raton and those online. As we've been looking through this book, and, and I don't know about you, but I have a semi-love-hate relationship with this book. I love the fact that it is so unbelievably practical and applicable to my life. And I hate the fact that it's so unbelievably practical and applicable to my life because I see how much I have to work on, how much farther. I'm so grateful that we have a patient God uh, as uh, this ongoing process of, of being transformed is the lifelong process with me. Anyway, so it is good to have you with us. James, as we talked about before, his Hebrew name was Jacob. Uh, and so it's translated James. But what's interesting is James was the, you know, this leader in the early church. He writes what is the first book of what we know today as the New Testament. This letter, this document was the first one that was written. And it was written to Jewish people who had been dispersed. And there's a great deal of credibility that James has with the Jewish people. His name, Jacob, uh, is a Hebrew name, Jacob, has a long history in Israel. In fact, Sometime, not now, but sometime when you've got insomnia in the middle of the night and you want to just kind of have some gentle reading, read through the genealogy of Christ found in Matthew chapter 1. It starts with Abraham, it ends with Christ, and after, you know, if you work backwards, it starts with Christ, and then the next one is Joseph, who was the husband of Mary who gave birth to Jesus. But Joseph's dad was named Jacob. Now, we also know that James is the brother of Jesus, so James, or his Hebrew name Jacob, was actually named after his grandfather. But if you go back to the very beginning of the genealogy, it starts with Abraham, who is the father of Isaac, who is the father of Jacob. Jacob, who was the father of Judah and his brothers, which became the tribes, and that Jacob, was, his name was changed to Israel. So he has this long history, which gives him some credibility with the Jewish folks. Not only that, but all the Jewish people that he's writing to are followers of Jesus. They're the ones who have understood that Jesus was the Messiah. They've been redeemed by him. And the fact that James is Jesus' brother gives him great credibility as well. And while James didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah during Jesus' earthly ministry, after the resurrection, he becomes convinced. And while that convincing of the Messiahship of Christ didn't happen until later, I have to believe that, that James was very familiar with the life and the teachings of his brother. And as we see today in the passage we'll look at, he was greatly influenced because in one verse that we'll look at today, you see the influence of Jesus' incredible teaching called the Beatitudes. 
And James kind of gives this little shout out inadvertently to the influence of the Beatitudes in his life and teaching. In this one verse that we'll look at, it talks about those who are pure in heart, those who are, uh, you know, the uh, peacemakers, the, the meek, the merciful, and those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Five of those uh, Beatitudes make its way into today's teaching. And as he's teaching, his, uh, his, his letter is given to those who are already followers after Christ, and his great desire is that they would grow up in their faith, they would mature, that they would solidify the foundation and grow their roots deeper. So we're gonna pick up right where we left off last week with Pastor Brian and his teaching out of, out of James chapter three, if you have your Bible. And I tell you what, I, I'm sure if you're like me, you had opportunities to apply the teaching that Pastor Brian brought to us last week. You had opportunities, not saying that you followed through, but you had opportunities to keep a tight rein on your tongue. Like Ron White, I think, said, I had the right to remain silent, just not the ability. And some of you had opportunities to apply it. You may not have, but we'll continue on. We're gonna pick up in James chapter three, verse 13, when he says, who is wise and understanding among you? Now, this isn't just some random rhetorical question. The wise and understanding. In the Jewish mentality in the Jewish life, wisdom was of great importance. And they had an entire section of their sacred scripture that was referred to as wisdom literature. And what's interesting, I want to give you a little background on this so you kind of understand where he's coming from because he is Jewish, speaking to Jewish people. Jewish wisdom, the way they understood wisdom was different than the way the Greeks understood wisdom. Greek wisdom is that, that typical, stereotypical idea of, you know, the old man sitting on top of the mountain with the long beard, contemplating and, and thinking deep thoughts and, and discussing things, that it's very philosophical, that you sit around thinking and contemplating and, and talking and discussing and coming up with lyrics like, all we are is dust in the wind. As the sands of the hourglass, so are the days of our life. What if the hokey pokey is what it's all about? Those kind of deep thoughts. And it really, wisdom and the Greek understanding was to be able to have the right answer. But in the Jewish mindset, it was far different. The Jewish mindset, wisdom wasn't about what do I come up with in my mind? What do I come up with when I think and contemplate? In the Jewish mind, wisdom comes from the very mind of God. It's not what I came up with, it's what God came up with. And what was uh, drastically different from Greek wisdom, is Greek wisdom dealt with ideology and philosophy, stuff out there. In the Jewish mind, godly wisdom came with a practical application. How is it that we live with God's wisdom in living and managing our lives? And so it's not so much about having this right answer out there, but about having the right life that God has created. So to understand all that, when James comes along and he says to his Jewish people, who among you is wise and understanding, even those two words are not just random words. Solomon, who had written a lot of the wisdom literature, uses those words, and so when he asks this question, it probably takes all of them back to their childhood of what they've learned from their earliest years. In the book of Proverbs chapter four, Solomon writes, wisdom is supreme, therefore get wisdom. Though it cost all you have, get understanding. There are those two words, wisdom and understanding. And they're thinking, oh yeah, we know what we're talking about here. This isn't an, an outlier, this isn't the only place. In Proverbs chapter three, he writes this. Blessed, how lucky, how fortunate, how incredibly happy is the man who finds wisdom, the man who gains understanding. So their whole life, they'd been seeking wisdom and understanding, the very mind of God that showed them how to live the life that God had created. 
And here Solomon takes his concept of wisdom and, and personifies it, almost like puts this anthropomorphic being of wisdom, refers to wisdom as this, uh, like this beautiful woman that you want to have in your life to enhance your life. He says this, for she, talking about wisdom and understanding, she is more profitable. By the way, men, if you're married and you're ever in the doghouse, read these words and ex exchange wisdom and understanding for your wife's name. Okay. She is more profitable than silver and yields better returns than gold. She is more precious than rubies. Nothing you can desire compares with her. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant, pleasant ways, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who embrace her. Those who lay hold of her will be blessed. He says, why would you want to live any other way? To live with the wisdom and the understanding that comes from the mind of God that shows us how to live, not just to get the right answers, but how to live and how to manage our lives. It is the blessed life. It is the best life. It is the happy life. It is the fortunate life. It's the lucky life. It's the life that you were created to live. And that was the Jewish mindset. What I find interesting is when Paul, who was raised with this as well, he was Jewish, he would have known all that, but Paul goes and he speaks to all the Gentiles and the Greeks who have this different understanding of wisdom. And in his, you know, converting them and bringing them into this understanding of Christ the Messiah, he also brings some Jewish thought into his writings to them. So when he writes to the church in Ephesus, which would have been predominantly Greek and Gentile people, having a different understanding of wisdom, he writes these words, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. That wisdom isn't just how you think. Wisdom isn't just philosophical. Wisdom is how you live. That there is a way to live that is wise and there is a way to live that is unwise. In Andy Stanley's book called The Best Question Ever, and we did a series on that years ago, Stanley says, the best question ever that we should ask ourselves in life when we have decisions we're facing, when there's things, uncertainty, when we're trying to make choices, the best question ever is, what is the, right, what is the wise thing? There's a lot of other questions you could ask and you should ask. But the best question you can ask is, what is the wise thing? Because isn't it true? You could ask the question, is it legal? And the answer may be, yes, it's legal, but it's not necessarily wise. Isn't that true? Okay. Because it's completely legal to take all of your retirement savings and put it on red at the casino. That's legal. Just not very wise. You could even ask, is it a sin? Now, that's a good question. But there may be something that, that isn't a sin, but because of who you are, your past, or your experiences, it may not be the wisest thing. It may not be a sin, but it may not be a wise thing. You know, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. This may not be best for you. You can ask the question, will I get caught? Now, let me just say, if you ask that question, whatever you're considering, just stop now. <laughs> the fact that you're even asking, will I get caught, is the, the red flag that says, no, you don't want to do this. You could ask, is this culturally acceptable? Will my parents be mad if they find out? Will my spouse be upset? Those are all good questions, but the best question is, is this the wise thing? Is it wise in how I live this? Now, before we go any further, I wanna give you the phrase that pays. This is, you're gonna hear me repeat this. It's not in your notes, it's not on the screen. You can write it down if you want. You're gonna hear me repeat it 10 or 12 times. My hope is that you'll be able to quote it on your way out. It kind of rhymes to help you remember this. It's the, the 
synopsis of the difference between Greek and Jewish wisdom. wisdom. It's the synopsis of the teaching about wisdom in Scripture. It's the synopsis of everything we're going to talk about today. And here's how it goes. Wisdom is not proved by the answer you give. Wisdom is proved by the life you live. Okay, no gasp, no awes. It wasn't that profound. <laughs> wisdom is not proved by the answer you give. Wisdom is proved by the life that you live. C can you say that with me? Try, try at least just throw in some words every now and then. Wisdom is not proved by the answer you give. Wisdom is proved by the life that you live. Now, I'm going to say that, like I said, 10 or 12 times in the sermon. Every time I start saying that, join right in, because at the end, there's going to be a test. This is what I want you to walk away with. This is it. That wisdom is not proved by the answer you, you're supposed to join me on this stuff. <laughs> wisdom is not proved by the answer you give. Wisdom is proved by the life that you live. All right, so James writes this in James chapter 3, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. Now, we're going to look at a verse here in a few minutes that is just like this one verse that is so profound. It will, I think, and I'm not trying to oversell this thing, I think it will revolutionize our lives if we can grab a hold of it. But I want us to spend a little time here because he sets this thing up. Wisdom and understanding, if you've got that, let him show it. Now, this is a repeated theme for James, isn't it? You say you have faith, what does he say? Show me. Don't just talk about it. Don't, don't just agree with it. Don't just believe it. Show me. He says, same thing with wisdom. You think you have wisdom? You think you have understanding? Show me. Someone who has that, let him show it by his good life. Now, I don't want to get too down in the weeds here, but this word good can really be understood in two different arenas. One is good like morally correct, like right and wrong, like good versus evil. But there's another way to interpret this word good and that is like beautiful, lovely, like beauty versus ugly. Now, I don't think these are, are polar opposites, but some of you have seen people who live morally correct lives, but they're not beautiful lives. They do all the right things, they follow all the rules, they do everything that's legal and good and all that on the morals that morally correct. I mean, they pay their taxes, they drive the speed limit, they go to church, they tithe, they floss their teeth, they change the battery and the smoke detector. They do all the right things, but their life is devoid of joy, of laughter, of love. They're negative, they're cynical, they're critical, they're judgmental, they're arrogant. And you know where those people dwell most often? In the church. It's you. That's why some of you left the church. Because there was some well-meaning parent or elder or pastor, and they did all the right things, but they were so negative and so critical, you said, I don't want to have anything to do with that life. It may have been morally correct, but it was not beautiful. These are not opposites. Who, who was the most morally correct, most beautiful life that ever graced the earth? <laughs> Jesus was. Completely good. He says, listen, you think you've got wisdom and understanding. Show me by this beautiful life that you have. By deeds. Here it is again. These deeds, these works. Deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. This humility thing is a, is a theme he'll come back to in chapter 4, verse 6, and chapter 4, verse 10. We may get into that next week. But humility that comes from wisdom. 
Notice here again, wisdom is not just answers. Because in 1 Corinthians it says knowledge puffs up, but now we're talking about humility. Humility that comes from wisdom. You know, it's been said, wisdom comes with age. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. I don't think it absolutely guarantees, because some of you know some old people that are really stupid too. All right. Now, if you're offended right now, <laughs> I didn't say you were, but maybe you are. Um, just because you grow old does not necessarily mean that you grow wise. But here's what I think happens. As we go on through years, some of the youthful arrogance maybe gets knocked down a notch or two as we've gone through some hardships, we've walked through some deep valleys, we've had some disappointments, we've experienced some failures, we've weathered some storms, it wasn't the end of the world, and we've come out of it and we're wiser, we have greater experiences, but maybe we're not as arrogant and cocky thinking we've got it all figured out like we used to. Whereas maybe when we're young, we think we've got it all and there's not that humility. I mean, I, again, if you're a sophomore in high school or college, I'm sorry for offending you on this one. The word sophomore is made up of two words. Sopho, which is where we get Sophia, wisdom, like philosophy is the love of wisdom. More is the word where we get moronic, moron. The word sophomore literally means wise fool. You know, I've got a year on campus, I'm big man on campus, I know how it goes, and he's like, yeah, I don't have a clue. But as we get older, there's some wisdom that comes, and with that comes some humility, that we would humble ourselves, that we would understand this stuff that comes from these years that we've had uh, here on this earth. And so he says, so show it, you have wisdom. Because wisdom is not proved by the answer you give. Wisdom is proved by the life that you live. All right, so, so when you see this, what he's saying is these deeds, your, your beautiful life, again, it's this theme that, that works confirm wisdom. How we live our life, the things that we do, confirms how wise, truly wise we are with the wisdom that God has on how we live our lives. And he says this kind of wise life is a beautiful life, it's a humble life, it's the picture of Jesus. Now, he, before he gets into the details of that, he points out what it is not. So this concept of, of a life of wisdom, he gives the contrast, the, the opposite. Verse 14, he says, but if you harbor bitter, harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. I found this interesting as I was studying this, and I'm, I'm not making this up. Having just come off the midterm elections with all the political stuff that was going on and all the campaigns and all the stuff on Facebook, this whole concept talks about this harsh zeal that becomes almost fanaticism, and this phrase could literally be translated party attitude. Not like parte, not like Spuds McKenzie party animal stuff, but like partisan, like something that is a faction like us and them. And he says, when we have this attitude that has this zeal for whatever it is that we hold on to, and it causes this faction where it's us and them, and, and we're good and they're bad and all this, he says, all of that, he says, don't boast about that. that that's not the wisdom. That's not how you live your life according to how God has ordained it. You might understand that in this world, that might be the way things are. Yes, there's some differences, and there always will be. And there's some disagreements, and it'd be nice to say, we can disagree, we can agree to disagree agreeably and then stop there, but it doesn't stop there. 
Because the differences become disagreements, which becomes friction, which becomes animosity, which becomes hostility, and it may end up in riots that are violent in the streets of Portland or pipe bombs that are sent from, from Florida or Facebook posts that are destructive. And it doesn't, the, the political arena is the easy target right now. But this is the case in any such situation where there's some differences, even in a marriage, even in a home, even in a friendship, even in a workplace, even in a church. And that's the way the world operates. But James is saying, not you. You're Christ followers. You, you work with a different operating system. You have the Holy Spirit within you. You've been redeemed. You've been adopted. You've been transformed. You act differently. You interact differently. You think differently. You, you talk differently. It's a different attitude. That we don't operate the way the rest of the world does. And so then he does this contrast the contrast of, of wisdom from above or below. And he just kind of points out the difference of these two. You know, which one comes like godly wisdom and which one is like earthly wisdom. Verse 15, such wisdom, and he puts it in little quote marks, like if you want to call this wisdom, the way you live your life where there's divisions and factions and anger and hostility and hatred and hurtful words, all that, you want to call that wisdom, such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly. He just shows the contrast there. There's one that's from heaven, from God, and then there's one that's from the earth. It's kind of the way the man, man just operates. Fallen, broken man, mankind operates. But he doesn't stop there with just, yeah, this is kind of the reality here. He does this kind of stair-step little walk down, this descension into kind of this deeper level of, of degradation. He says it's not just earthly, but it's unspiritual, and he doesn't stop there. He says, it's of the devil. You think, whoa, whoa, James, you're getting a little overly dramatic. He says, no, no, no. Either the way you live your life comes from the, the gates of heaven or the pit of hell. And he says, and when it's all this divisiveness and harsh words and dissension, all that, he says, that is not from God. He goes on, for, for where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder. Ever see that in our world? And every evil practice, and before we get to kind of go into this, well, like, what is he talking about? Sacrificing babies to idols and all that. No, no, no. Evil practice. How about this? The acts of the sinful nature are hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, dissension, factions, and envy. So that's the way the world operates, but not the people of Jesus. Not the followers of Christ. That's not the way we operate. And he just lays out, he lays out this contrast. Now, now we get to verse 17. And this is the verse I want us to spend the rest of our time on. Because this verse, if we truly, this is the kind of verse you read over and just kind of keep going. This verse is so profound. And it's so practical. If if we would apply this verse, if we would allow this verse to change our lives, it would seriously revolutionize every relationship we have. It would revolutionize our homes. It would revolutionize our workplaces. As we, the followers of Christ, if we live this out, this would revolutionize our world. I mean it to that degree. Verse 17, he starts off this way. He says, but, contrast, but the wisdom that comes from heaven. Now, we got to just stop right there for a minute. Because as dramatic as he was about this wisdom that's of the devil and all these evil practices, he's just as dramatic or intense about this wisdom that comes from heaven. 
That just seems lovely to us. Wisdom from heaven. That's chicken soup for the heavenly soul. This is nice Reader's Digest stuff. This is stuff your mom reads, okay? He said, no, 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 no. In the Jewish mind, it was far greater than that. When they talked about wisdom that came from heaven, it wasn't just pleasant thoughts. It wasn't just kind of nice daily affirmations. In Proverbs, we read this. By wisdom, the Lord laid the earth's foundations. By understanding, he set the heavens in place. When James says, the wisdom that is from heaven, again, remember, these are Jewish minds that have grown up with this. Now they know what he's talking about. The wisdom that God used to create the cosmos, the wisdom that God uses that allows the planets and the stars to all go in order and to, to have this, this rhythm, the, the, the wisdom that God uses to bring about the seasons of the year, the wisdom that God uses to bring about the, the detail and, the, and the, the ornate way that this world is created and the beauty of it and the, the difference of it, the wisdom that God uses to create and hold this world together is good enough to hold the world together in the cosmos, then maybe the wisdom that is from heaven is good enough to hold my life together that the wisdom that God uses to orchestrate the entire universe every day is the wisdom that God would use to orchestrate my life every day. On your own, read, read Proverbs chapter eight. It says the first thing God ever created was wisdom. And he's saying that's the wisdom we're talking about. This isn't just something you come up with in your mind. This is the wisdom from the mind of God that has been around from the very beginning of creation, from the very opening pages of our, what we know as time. That wisdom that is tested, tried, and true is the wisdom that comes from heaven. Paul takes us on when he writes in Colossians. He says this, my purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, look at this, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And when he writes to the church in Ephesus, he said, this is what I pray for you. I keep asking that, God our, uh, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. That when James says, but the wisdom that comes down from heaven, it's what our God and Father created this universe on. It's what is hidden in Christ. It is what is revealed in the spirit. This isn't just chicken soup. This is the way to live your life. And he starts off and he says, first of all, this kind of wisdom is pure. It's pure. That it is altogether good. It is altogether lovely. There is nothing vile. There is nothing evil. There is nothing negative. There is nothing hurtful or harmful in this wisdom. So if you have wisdom that has all of that, it's not from heaven. The wisdom we're talking about is the wisdom that comes from our God who is altogether good and holy and righteous and just and gracious and loving. That's the wisdom we're talking about. It is pure, pure wisdom. Now, give me permission to go down one little rabbit trail. Okay, I'll be back. So one little thing. So after this, James, remember, this is the first book that was written in what we have today as the New Testament. James goes into this kind of this list of seven adjectives. We're going to get into these things. But I wonder, I wonder if James's influence on Paul is seen. Because when Paul writes his letters, it seems like he always does these lists of things. 
And I wonder if he got that idea from James. I mean, you know some of these lists. 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps those records of wrongs, it rejoices, in, you know, all those things. It's, it's this list. Galatians 5, the, fruit, the uh, acts of sinful nature, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, jealousy, dis- you know, all those things. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Philippians 4, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is right, whatever is noble, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. Colossians, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, forgiveness, patience, forgiveness. All these lists. And I wonder if he's like, Hey, James did that. That's a good idea. So that was my little rabbit trail. I just find that interesting. So James gives us this list. He says, this this wisdom that is from God that tells you how to live your life. Let me give you a little picture of this. And I want us to read through it, and then we're going to come back and walk through it. He says this. First of all, pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. He paints this picture. This is what wisdom is. Because wisdom is not proved by the answer that you give. Wisdom is proved. You guys did much better than the Saturday night group. All right. So let's just kind of walk through this. He says, first of all, after it's pure, then it's, it's peace-loving. Peace-loving. He doesn't say peaceful. He says peace-loving. I mean, do you really love peace? Do you love peace in your interaction with your family? Do you love peace in your interactions at work? Do you love peace in this world? Do you love peace even with those neighbors of yours that may not agree? Do you love peace? You know, the, the, uh, the immature side of me, which comes out every day, um, sometimes comes out like when someone says, oh, I love the fall, or I love pumpkin spice lattes. And I channel that inner fourth grader and say, if you love it so much, why don't you marry it? <laughs> which is great pastoral wisdom. But if you love peace, why don't you marry it? Why don't you unite your life with peace so much that until death do you part, the rest of your life, you'll be identified with peace, you will cultivate peace, you will pursue peace, peace will be a part of who you are. Why don't you marry it? Why don't you become peace-loving? As followers of Christ, our prince of peace, you're peace-loving. Now sometimes, sometimes I get accused of picking on Lyndon, and I am not gonna do that today. I am not going to do that today. Canada, however. (laughs) Any Canadians here today? All right. God bless you. Canadians are peace-loving neighbors to the north. So kind, so gentle, so polite. They think we're so mean, so arrogant, so militaristic. A a couple years ago, Doreen and I were going up to Whistler, and we stopped at a little convenience store, and I went in, and I asked, and I chose these words very specifically. I said, do you take U.S. currency? I did not say, do you take American money? Because Canadians are American. They're in the the continent of North America. So I did not use that. I said, do you take U.S. currency? And without missing a beat, he says, we have to or you'll bomb us. (laughs) Really? So I paid, and I walked out. I'm not going to bomb him. I just let all the tire air out of his tires. So in Canada, in Canada, on May 12, 1994, the House of Commons, because apparently they don't have a whole lot to, to do up there, the House of Commons enacted the National, uh, uh, the National Sports of Canada Act. No big surprise, but on May 12, 1994, Canada made it official that hockey would be the national sport winter sport of Canada, our peace-loving neighbors to the north. 
Did you know that on a hockey team, there are certain roles that are just known and expected to be on there? Now, they wouldn't be listed on a program, but one of the roles that a hockey player plays on a hockey team is that of, and this is the term they use, as a pest. It's also referred to as an agitator. And on every hockey team, there is someone who is a pest, an agitator, and their sole purpose is to throw off the game of the other team. And they might use legal means, and they might use borderline legal means, they might use some illegal means. It usually involves trash talking, hooking, and slashing. Here's what we know. The pest or the agitator always knows where the puck is on the ice and where the refs are on the ice. Because they will throw in some cheap shots just to get these people off the game. And then when the ref turns around, they'll go like, what, what, what? And sometimes they try to do this in order to draw the penalty on the other team, kind of do this stuff over here. And then they turn around like, wait, 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 why is he doing this? Not only is there a pest as an official role on the team, there's also what is referred to as an enforcer. They often use the word goon. These are the guys who have no front teeth. They're not the best hockey players on the ice. But their purpose, their purpose is to retaliate aggressively to anything that would have come from the other team. They're the ones that fight. They're the ones that do the severe body checks into the boards. All these kind of things. Now, you may not care about Canada or hockey. You may have never watched it. But some of you understand these roles. Don't point at all, but some of you are married to a pest. And they do these little jabs, and they're like, what, what, what? This passive aggressiveness. And some of you who are married to a pest, you respond as the enforcer. You've knocked your own front teeth out. Because you fight back with this retaliation, or you've been in relationships, or in families, or in groups, where there is a pest, where there is a, an enforcer. And James says, that's not wisdom. As the followers of Christ, we're to be peace-loving. Lord, there's these right relationships. Now, again, some of you were raised in church. Some of you were raised in church going to business meetings every year. And in those business meetings, you saw that even in the church, there was a pest. There was an enforcer. And sometimes that individual saw it as their spiritual gift to the church. And James would say, no, you come with that attitude from the pit of hell. This is the wisdom that comes from heaven. First of all, it's peace loving. Because wisdom is not proved by the answer you give. Wisdom is proved by the life that you live. And then he goes on and says, not only is it peace-loving, but it's considerate. And we think, oh, that's polite. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. You know, magic words like that. And, and this is a, an interesting one. In, in all the commentaries, and, and Kip and I both looked into this, all the commentaries say this is one of the most difficult words to translate into English. In fact, one commentary said this is the most difficult word in the entirety of the New Testament to translate into English because we don't have a word that's synonymous with what this was, you know, in the original. So some people try to say, you know, well, it's considerate or gentle or it's meek or it's mild or it's moderate. And all of those have, have pieces of it, but it doesn't fully encompass it. One, and this is the one that I like because it doesn't have as much baggage because it's words that I don't always use. One of them said it's sweet reasonableness. And they said it's easier to describe and illustrate than it is to define. To describe this word that, that, that's in here as considerate or sweet reasonableness is when you understand 
that there's sometimes in certain circumstances where there's something greater at stake than a rule or a ritual or a regulation or a principle or the letter of the law. That there's something more important at this moment than this thing. And the illustration, obvious one of this, is out of John chapter 8, when the woman who is caught in the very act of adultery is brought in front of Jesus and the Pharisees trying to trap Jesus said, what shall we do? The law says that we should stone her. And at this moment, Jesus knows there's something greater at stake than just keeping the law. That yes, we can stone her and that will fulfill the law, but it will destroy a life. And what's more important right now? Simon Sinek, which is a cool last name for a guy who's an optimist. (laughs) Simon Sinek, he's best known probably for his TED talk on Start With The Why, has a new book coming out next month uh, called The Infinite Game. And he did a talk that's basically the synopsis of the book called The Infinite Game. And in this talk, there was this line that was just like, wow, that is so profound. He's talking about teams that trust each other. And he made this statement. He says, we trust our teams not to keep the rules. We trust our teams to know when to break the rules. To know that there's a set of policies, there's a set of rules, there's a set of operating procedures, but there are certain times and certain circumstances when those go away because there's something greater at stake here. And that to be able to understand that and to be able to know that's wisdom. Wisdom is not proved by the answer you give. Wisdom is proved by the life that you live. And then he says, and it's submissive. And we don't like that word because it seems so negative. It seems so weak. It seems like we're going to be walked all over. But this idea of submissive here is one where we say, you know what? I'm not so, so stubborn, so set on my principle that I won't be willing to listen and try to understand. And in that, as we begin to understand and begin to listen, we begin to look at what's at, at play here. Now, some of you, again, I, I know some of you are married and you know what this is like. Your spouse makes a comment, and it's just a shot. And you're like, okay. It's on. It's on like Donkey Kong. <laughs> you, got, you go in there? You want to go there? Come on. Bring it. And you know where this is going. This idea is getting to the point where you do a profit-loss analysis, where you say in your head, I can win this argument. I've got some trump cards in that I don't pull out very often. And I can just slam him, I can slam her, I can put this one away. But you know that the price that you will pay far exceeds the little win that you will gain. And this submissive is to be able to look at a a situation and say, yeah, I can win this one, but I'm not willing to pay that price. And knowing when when you should be willing to just yield and say, okay, let's just let this one go. You know, I'm going to forego this one because, because there is something greater to be gained than just winning this argument or this situation. Because wisdom is not proved by the answer you give. Life that you live. And then he goes on and says, and full of mercy. Full of mercy. This is a theme that he's already talked about in chapter two. We didn't spend a lot of time on it, but where he talks about mercy triumphs over judgment. But what I love is when he says, it's, you're full of mercy. And I was thinking about that whole idea of being full of mercy. And I thought, how do I know if I'm full of mercy? When someone bumps into me literally or figuratively, what's the first thing that spills out? If I'm full of mercy, the first thing that spills out is mercy. 
In chapter 5, verse 11, he says, the Lord is full of mercy. And think about the mercy that God has shown us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us to be that full of mercy. One of my favorite songs that we were singing these days says, alone in my sorrows and dead in my sin, lost without hope and no place to begin. Your love made a way to let mercy come in. But it doesn't stop there. Mercy goes beyond pity. It's not just this I feel sorry for. It's beyond pity. Because notice, some of you who are literary giants know that in a list of things, a comma goes between each one until the last two. The comma goes away and an and comes in. That's how you do a list. However, there's an and here. Any of you raised with Schoolhouse Rock? Conjunction, junction, what's your function? All right, that's what we got going here. It's not the end of the list. He's tying these two together. He says these are inseparable. When you're full of mercy, it's not just feeling bad. It results in good fruit. There's practical action. And again, I think with James, the brother of Jesus, as he's writing this, he must have been aware of that story that Jesus told of the Good Samaritan, where the Samaritan had not only had mercy, not only just felt bad for the person, but followed it up with practical helps, with good fruit. Because you could say, well, it's wise to feel the right thing, but wisdom is not proved with the answer you give. Wisdom is proved by the life that you live. And then he goes on, he says, then there's impartiality. And we talked about not showing favoritism. We looked at that three weeks ago. But, but this goes even, even beyond that. This whole concept of, of the impartiality that we have in our lives has to do with, with this, this thought of this unwavering conviction, that we're not wishy-washy. To which it's real easy to say, but doesn't that kind of cancel out what we talked about here? Now follow this. It's to have these unwavering convictions that we will stand on, that we will live by, that we will die for, that allows us to do these things. Let me explain. It's the conviction that relationships are more important than religion that it caused Jesus to say, we're not going to stone her. That was the conviction. It's the conviction where people are more important than prophets, where integrity is more important than efficiency. It's these convictions that we won't sway from that says, you know, on these things, yeah, we're gonna, we got some wiggle room on that because of these things. And then finally he says, sincere. Sincere. That what you see is what you get. There's no pretense here. It's without hypocrisy. These are pure motives that I'm coming with. And when you begin to look at this whole list, you begin to see this that he paints this picture of this humble, beautiful life of wisdom. He begins to paint a picture of the life that Jesus lived. And he says, and that's what we're called to, and that's what we're expected to live. And that's how to live in the wisdom that comes from the mind of God to live the life that God created us to live. We don't have time, but he circles back around to where he started in verse 18. He says, peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness, which the whole thing just begs the question, which wisdom does my life reflect? The wisdom from above or the wisdom from below? The wisdom that everyone else lives by, the rules of this world, or the wisdom that comes from God? Which does my life reflect? I want to circle back to that very first verse that we looked at. 
Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. Because wisdom is not proved by the answer you give. Wisdom is proved by the life that you live. And this is how I want us to end today. And you can put your Bibles and your pens away. You may want to hold your notes out if you've been keeping them. But we look at these seven attributes. And I want us to close our time today really just kind of maybe doing a wisdom inventory in our own life. And before we get back into the business of day and, you know, the weekend and the game and the family and all that, I want us to just pause. And some of you know, boy, this is an area that needs redemption. Boy, this is an area where I need to invite the power of the Holy Spirit to continue to transform me. This is an area that I need to surrender. And some of you may need to just listen and say, God, I need you to whisper to me, which one? And I want us to just spend a few minutes, just you and God, don't think about what your spouse, your friends, your pastor, your politician needs. Think about what God would have you to do, to live a life of wisdom. And just walk through each one of these, thinking about what they mean. And after a minute or so, I'll close this in prayer. Let's just spend some time. Am I living a life of wisdom? Jesus, we long to have lives of wisdom and not just having right answers, but to live the life that you've created us to live, the blessed life, the God-honoring life, the life that brings reconciliation and peace and healing to our broken world. So God, I pray that you would continue to develop these adjectives within us. That we would continue to surrender to you. And that in our lives, that there would be 
such a marked, obvious difference that it comes from a pure heart of pure motives where we would love and pursue peace in every relationship, in every arena. Be considerate, submissive, full of mercy that results in good fruit, impartial and sincere. May we live that life. We pray it in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus, the most beautiful life that was ever lived.